we had every array of perspective. I, I'll never forget one of my, this is the best metaphor for how it's changed. We had this guy, so first day of philosophy course, tell us your grade, you know, your major and something interesting about yourself. And this guy, you know, goes through the whole class and the guy at the end goes, I'm so-and-so, I'm in 12th grade and I hate feminism. And the whole room was like, okay, but it was philosophy class. So that was the end of it. It started there, ended there. We go through a whole semester of, and, and the beauty was you'd have Bible thumpers and atheists in the same room. We could debate, you know, the relationship of your soul to your body. They come from completely two different perspectives, and nobody leaves the room hating each other. We well, could learn I from each other. When you went to college for the first time, you liked people for exactly who they were because you didn't know anything about it. You didn't know what kind of house they grew up in. I went home with some, found out they were like wealthy beyond description. You would never have known that until you went to their house. Went with some who obviously didn't have money. But you liked them because of who they were. But we didn't, none of this even <laughs> entered our world until. Which really makes you wonder, where is it, it it's, it feels coerced. Like it's an orchestrated effort. Well, the thing is, I find that I can't, you can't have a discussion any longer. Right. Because it turns into... You're either going to boycott somebody, you're going to hate somebody. It's, you can never have any just discussion. So we, we picked up Deshaun Watson for the Browns, right? I share this picture, and the picture, it was funny. It was the Browns, you know, statement for why we picked this guy up and excusing his actions or whatever. And somebody scribbled out everything he, he, the, the Browns organization said and said, we wanted to win, sorry. I just shared that because I'm done with Baker. I'm, I'm done with right. all of this, and I want to move on. I have these liberal guys, they're, they're faculty, not, you know, they, they don't have a law degree or anything. The faculty from my law school just tearing me up. You know, you're despicable because how dare you get excited about somebody with all these allegations. I'm like, I didn't do this. Like, you know, and, and I'm more laughing at the fact that Baker can't find a team, more, more so than praising this guy and his actions. And for it to become so aggressive so fast, it's like, can we even laugh anymore or no. just enjoy? No. You can't. <laughs> You're right. Unless you find your group that has the same beliefs that you do. Now, how sad is that, that it's it forcing awful. us into hyper? It's awful. Because it actually, you actually know certain people you can't have any kind of a rational discussion. Because right. Because I can remember having a discussion one time we were playing cards and we were talking about... Obama at the time, and this one gal says, well, in the middle of this, she goes, well, I hate Trump. <laughs> and I said, well, that's fine, but what does that have to do with the discussion that we're having? It doesn't right. have anything to do with it. <laughs> it's like, and I just saw the Australian news the other day showing a clip of Pelosi talking. <laughs> then they showed one of Harris and one of Biden, and they're laughing, saying, of the millions of people in the United States, these are the three best that they could come up with. Here's the thing that I keep wrestling with. If we don't dismantle bipartisanship soon, we are always going to be trapped with the lesser of two evils. 350 million people in a tribe. You're telling me we can't have the problem of, man, both of these, both of these candidates are so good I don't know who to vote for. And it used to be that way. Right. And 
it's it's so unbelievable now. I mean, we're spending money in our country as if it's monopoly money. It it's got the inflation's going to get worse because of it. It's just it's it's beyond description. There, I don't know. Well, it it, it blows my mind <laughs> that you loans. you right. take out a loan, you pay it back. There's your solution. Period. How about this one? This is what really kills me. Is how come in the I guess, college forgiveness plan. There's no retroactively going back and paying the people who paid back their loans. It's just to forgive those that still have a debt in their gender studies course that isn't going to pay it off. One father uh, confronted, uh, oh, she thought she was an Indian and she's not. Oh, man. Uh, Elizabeth Warren. Yes. And he said, are you going to pay me back? He said, I worked two jobs and my daughter worked so that we wouldn't have to take out any loans. And she goes, well, no, of course we're not. He goes, well, how fair is that? Right. And what about the poor soul that could not afford to go to college, therefore they are working because they cannot possibly afford to go to college, and they're going to have to help pay back someone who got a degree in underwater basket weaving that isn't going to afford them a lifestyle to begin with? You know, it's like, yeah, it's and, insane. And what what's even more laughable now is we've, coerce so many people into thinking college is the golden ticket for everybody that now even parallel to that scenario you you presented you also have people who are making bank in the trades now because nobody's going into trades anymore i used to tell my students i said listen to me with my education and the graduate hours i have and so forth the plumber makes more walking in my door yes than i'm ever going to make you know it's like please Think about some of this stuff. We're always going to need plumbers. We're always going to need the car people. We're always going to need people of the trades. I said, we, we've gotten away from, I don't know, kids are going to college and getting degrees that are not going to afford them a lifestyle. Right. And then they're upset when it doesn't. Plus, if they get a decent degree, they think they should start out at the same level that, say, their dad is. Right. You know, not work. I saw in starting an education that, these young teachers were coming in, and, well, they should teach the advanced classes immediately. And my thing is you needed to come up through the ranks because right. if you teach Algebra two, for instance, but you've taught Algebra one before that, you know exactly what their background is. Right. It makes it so much easier. Like when I taught pre-calculus, I already taught Algebra two and Geometry and Algebra one. I knew exactly what they had had. Right. And I knew when they were going to have the light bulb moment because I knew what they didn't know from those courses. <laughs> but uh, I have a quote of yours. Oh, I yes? remember this. I can't balance my checkbook, but I can sure as heck graph a parabola. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but you know what? I, and what's funny is math was one of my stronger subjects. And it was the people that struggled with math all the time that would say, there's no value in this. When am I ever going to use this? You know, I, this is, and this gets back to the foundation of our conversation already. We're not teaching you what to think. You're not, you're not going to go use this in the real world. But I used to preface a lot of it. You're never going to do any of this ever again in your life. But it never hurts you to learn to think logically. Cool. Yes. When you're confronted. With, remember my motto was the difference between a successful student and one who isn't is that the successful student knows what to do when they don't know what to do. I like that. And uh, that was always on my board. And uh, I gave it to everybody the first day of school, as a matter of fact. But um, it would have been in your notebook. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was my goal was that, and I told him, I said, hey, kids, Shakespeare wasn't my thing. I said, I, I hated it. I said, they don't even know if he truly wrote it. 
they think Bacon did. And if he did write it, they thought he was on drugs. And I was supposed to figure out what that meant. And I was math and science, so this meant nothing to me. But I said I still did okay in it because it was just a, something you took a challenge, did it. Right, and you learned how to adapt. And I, you learned also in literature courses, you learned the opinion of the teacher, and then you knew what to write. That is so true. <laughs> that is so true. Because I used to say to him, how do you know that's what he meant if he didn't actually tell it to you? Right, right. Well, it's my inter... Back to how education's evolved. Well, it's my interpretation, right. and I'm the one scoring your paper. Well, see, I've seen education. I started out in the late 60s teaching at a 21-year-old. So I started out in my career where if you said you were a teacher, you were so respected. And if a child got in trouble in your classroom, you were guaranteed they were in worse trouble at home because... Parents' main goal was education. Right. This their child was there to learn. Period. I ended my career having to defend the fact that I actually got paid for working. Right. Because, you know they thought That's we were wild. paid too much. We actually had a school board member. Too much. Oh yeah. They had a school board member. Uh, in the last seven years that I taught, there was not one cent of an increase. And then, so several years after, they still hadn't had one, and the teachers were kind of little upset over that and one of our school board members actually said no teacher should be able to afford to live in my neighborhood so it went from me being in a revered position to ending my career at that level where we shouldn't be able to afford to live in your neighborhood wow <laughs> what an evolution yes and i don't I, you know this is something we could save for later but one of the th topics i wanted to bring up with you was so as i'm going to introduce you i will say wholeheartedly you, you will always be my favorite educator through college, law school, all the levels, simply because while there was a, a goal, this is what we're teaching today, you were there to, to grow minds, not, not make sure you knew how to do a geometry proof, but that you're thinking and that we're growing. And I loved that I could go to debate and I'd bring these topics to your class and we would you know, right. wrestle with them. And one of the ones, ironically, was like the end of junior year, but senior year when I had you, one of the most prominent topics was merit pay. I loved talking about that with you simply for the reason of everybody remembers their favorite teacher, no doubt. But even more so, they'll always remember their worst teacher, the person that just was like problematic. And I would always wrestle with Mrs. Crow deserves a reward for the extra effort versus the people that just get by. Well, it used to bother me because of the protection of the union that bad teachers could be protected. Now, that they, the administration had the right to do something about it, but they had to document in order to have the right to do that. And I said, no really good teacher wants bad teachers. Like a doctor doesn't want bad doctors. You know, it's, right. it's just a profession. But it used to kind of upset me that... Well, you don't get rewards in education at all. Much. I was fortunate that I had a lot of students and parents that would give me feedback and okay. say, you know, we really appreciate you or whatever. But I know when I was retiring that last few days, one teacher came to me and said, the administration is really, they don't know what they're going to do because I always took the students that they didn't know what to do with. And I said, well, why couldn't they have told me that when I was teaching? So you had the problem, the troubled children. And you didn't even realize it. No, I knew I did. 
But why couldn't they have said they admired me for it? Right. Yes. Yes. Even more so. <laughs> and and what also kills me is the profession of an educator has evolved to the point where you're now responsible for supplying the classroom like from from decorating the room to any supplies to the students for the most part it's on the teacher absolutely and when i found out that the national union uh which a lot of schools have pulled away from but they gave millions to biden's campaign i said that most i was ever given was a red pen one time you know like (laughs) oh my gosh why wasn't that money put in our classrooms i mean well, you want to know why? Because, you know, we're spending $50 million on gender study courses in Pakistan. That's oh, beneficial yes. to oh, us, yes, you know. Yes, yes. That's good stuff. Um, but, you know, let's get this thing started. So, I love that term, think tank. Think tank. I mean, you know what a think tank is? Like, how's a think tank go, Jim? Yeah, you know, they got cancel culture nowadays. You got to watch what they it's getting, it's getting real scary out here. as well it's the rethink tank looks like you had a little bit too much to think here in the rethink tank hey what's going on everybody and thanks for joining me again today is a real treat for myself and and for you the viewer as well because i have one of my most prized educators here and i think we're all gonna learn a little bit so without further ado i want to get right into this conversation and i want to introduce my guest my 12th grade math teacher mrs crow thank you so much for joining me well, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm impressed with what you've done here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's been a long evolution. Like, you know, this desk me and my uncle built, like this whole thing is just, I, it's, been a, it's been a long process, but it's a passion. You know, I, I live for these types of conversations. So without further ado, let's get right into this. Okay. I want to start with first, parents and education. We kind of opened up the conversation with how you've, you started at 21 years old teaching yes, and you've, you've got, gone across this evolution of where it started and where it ended. Can you tell us a little bit about that so we can address kind of where we're at now? Well, I started back in the late sixties when I was 21 years old. So my students at the time were just about three years younger than I was. <laughs> um, and it was hard to be an authority figure, but um, teachers at that time were very revered. It was a very revered profession. And I felt that, over the years, I ended, well, I felt I ended my career uh, when I retired, having to defend the fact that I actually got paid for what I did. And I found that kind of sad because I can honestly say from the moment that I walked into a classroom, I knew I was doing exactly what I was meant to do. And I loved every minute of it. I loved being a teacher. Uh, when I went to college back in those 60s, women had three choices. We could be a secretary, a teacher, or a nurse. If you went beyond that, you really had a lot of nerve. Well, I didn't have that much nerve, so I stayed in the education part, but I was in math and science because I actually wanted to be in a medical field, but didn't have the nerve to do that. So I picked biology and math because that was easy for me. That's what I was interested in. And But I could honestly say from the time I walked into a classroom, I knew I was doing what I was meant to do, so... That's too fantastic. I think I think the students in the desk reciprocating it felt the same way. So I have to ask you, I want to pick your brain a little bit on that. Give us a perspective of the time, you know, to have the nerve to to 
go into further education, everything else. What was that like? Well, the males in my freshman class at the university outnumbered the females three to one because girls, for the most part, didn't go to college. And if they did, they went to get their MRS to be married. <laughs> so, um, And it was, if you got your degree, you didn't think you were going to use it because you were probably going to be a wife and a mother. You know, okay. And so forth. But uh, having picked the fields of science and math, I would go into a class, there might be 150 guys in the class, I would be the only female. I and I actually had a young man say to me one time in a math class, he said, you really don't think you can compete with us. And I said, well, then leave me alone, you know. That is amazing. And as bashful as I was at that time, I can't believe that I, that that didn't phase me. Deter you, yeah. That's even more fantastic. So when I graduated from college, I literally could have said where I wanted to go and where I wanted to teach because there was such a nationwide shortage of math and science teachers. And I'm afraid we're going to end up with something similar to that coming up because a lot are leaving the profession and they aren't going into it in college because of, everything that's going on in education right now. So I'm afraid we're going to have shortages again. Well, I know we have shortages. So I guess when, when the result, and, and I do believe we're going down that same path, that teachers are underpaid, they're undervalued and underappreciated, and yet they have your children eight hours a day every day. It's cl- clearly the most prominent position in our society, and yet we undervalue them so severely. And for some children, it's their refuge for the day because they come from broken homes, they come from homes with violence, they come from homes with drugs, etc. So this is the one part of their day where they can be taken care of also. Right. you know, it's, that, yeah, That's, that's what I worried about with this pandemic because of the Zoom and so forth. What about that poor child who's in a home that the parents don't care? So that was actually one of the things I wanted to bring up to you is remote learning. From the beginning, I mean, my last semester of law school was on Zoom, and I could say wholeheartedly that was my least fruitful year semester of academics ever. Well, I had expressed that at the beginning of it. Just knowing the hours that I spent working with students before school, after school, during my lunch, and so forth, because not everybody gets math, right? and some of them have to put a lot of work in to get it. I said, well, how are they going to get help? Plus, half of my job as a teacher was getting to know the student, their their facial expressions, the questions they ask. I would go home at night and think about particular students, like, how can the next day can I rephrase that so they're going to understand it better? And you don't have that interaction if they're on Zoom because you're not getting to know them. So I want to ask you a question sincerely. And, you know, if you if you don't want to answer it, I, I understand. But I have such a hard time believing that 100% of my teachers went that extra length of racking their brain in the evening of how do I make a connection with this one troubled student or how do I rephrase this. Did you ever see in your in your tenure there that, you know, did it stand out to you that other teachers weren't doing that? Well, some teachers just literally teach, but they don't. I've actually had them say to me, I didn't get involved with the students like you did. Well, I couldn't teach without knowing the students. I truly appreciated the students. I I loved interacting with them. I loved the discussions. I loved the questions. And sometimes a child could ask a question, and you'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's we're going to go off on that tangent for a while. That's a <laughs> wonderful question. 
But uh, I just can't imagine. I couldn't have done the Zoom. I know that. I was too much of a perfectionist. I, I want to know the kids. I want to be able to interact with them. And, I mean, I know of classes where the, especially at the elementary level, the teacher would log in with the kids. You know, one kid's eating their cereal. One's got the, their thing upside down. <laughs> one isn't even in front of the camera. You know, it's like, it was just constant. And I have to give props to the teachers. I to do that on a moment's notice and change your entire style of teaching, right? I don't know how they did it. Do I think it was harmful? Absolutely, because reading scores are starting to show that across the nation. Um, I know a teacher that teaches math in another state. Said at the end of the year, the student said, well, what course should I shine, sign up for next year? And she, she said everything in her wanted to say, which I can't say on air, what difference does it make? <laughs> You've probably cheated through this whole year. You know, you had a sixty percent when you left me. You've down. I got a ninety-five percent. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, so I feel a lot was lost. Um, a lot of the parochial schools that did continue to go to school were going to be light years ahead because they went to school. Right, and, and that's the worst part. Is I think there's this uh, disassociation from how much that with privilege gap, whatever you want to say, it was only exacerbated. You you have kids. I, what killed me was seeing the kids in our neighborhood that, you know, are playing in the cul-de-sac and everything else, but they haven't seen another fellow student in a year. Well, plus, think, it's like, what if you had four children oh. and they've all got to be on a separate computer at someplace in your house right. with separate teachers I don't know how parents did it. I don't even know how. I don't even know how this worked. To tell you the truth, I mean. Well, I think we deep down know it didn't, and we're pretending to just make it, make this bl- square block fit through the circle hole. I can't imagine a kindergartner or a first grader. Plus, I'm a visual learner. I want someone right. actually showing me. I don't want to have to read directions. I don't want to have to uh, have someone just tell me. I want someone to sh- actually show me. Once they show me, I'm fine, and then I can go with it and. And, you know, be a success, but I need to be shown. And I just don't know how you did that. When I think of the hours I spent on my presentations for the smart board, I don't know how you did this because the teachers weren't in their classroom. Right. They were at home for the most part. I just don't know how it, I'm just thankful I was not teaching at that time. I can only imagine. And, And I think the point you raised, I definitely, you know, resonate with. A lot was lost. Um, I see it at our courthouse every day. You know, it's funny that the, the judge I work for, she's like, our the average reading level used to be fifth grade, and now our average reading level is third grade. And and these weren't people affected by COVID. These are grown adults, but it displays a trend, and we're headed down this road. And so I'm curious, if we look at a generation that a lot was lost in terms of academic growth, but I also think even more importantly, social and personal growth, how do we go about, do you have any any ideas of how we go about mending that or kind of making up for the lost lost time? Well, we've got to quit dumbing down education to begin with. Um, I know in, I talked to, and I'm not talking about this local area because I think they've done a pretty good job, but I've talked to other states. You know, they want to do away with um, the gifted program in math because it's racist. So you're going to punish the gifted children. And to me, that's an insult to anyone that 
you're saying to, that they're not capable of doing it. Right. Right? I mean, I don't get that at all. I mean, that just makes no sense. But um, So that's where I think you're seeing some of this parental involvement now. Of They saw a lot was happening over Zoom that they had, would not have known. Right, right. <laughs> and now they're getting really involved in what's going on in the schools and so forth. We've always had parental involvement in this area. Um, great extent of parental involvement. Um, but a lot of districts didn't, and I think now you're starting to see that happen nationwide. So I, I think you're, you're very right. Um, so let's kind of pedal back to the, this evolution of when you were 21 and you first started to now. Um, can we talk a little bit about parents and how they're invited? Right, we, we just talked about how you have the parents at home. They're starting to get get a little sense of what right. is going on in the court in the classroom. But I'm curious, or how is the courtroom. right? Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, it's one of the same anymore. Um, but I'm curious, how what was the evolution of, of the parents' involvement and engagement from when you started to now? Well, when I started, if a child got in trouble in your classroom, you knew they were going to be in trouble at home because the, the focus of the family was education, period. I mean, there was no discussion. This child was there to learn, and the, the parents were going to make sure that they learned. Now, we did go from that to, you know, if you if the child isn't getting an A, then it's the teacher's fault. Where Of course. And I used to tell my students at the beginning of the year, if you if you fail my class, you literally choose to fail it because I'm here to make sure you don't fail it. Right. And I will give up my lunch hour, et cetera, if, to make sure that you don't fail it. But, like, I had a father tell me one time that I had kept his, single-handedly kept his daughter out of Ohio State and because I had run her 2-2 GPA. And my response was, well, if she's a senior and has a 2-2 GPA, I did not single-handedly right. her out of yeah. Ohio State. And I said, well, all she had to do was come for help. Right. You know, that's all she had to do, and they would have solved the whole problem. But, uh, and I used to, I know some kids don't want to come for help, but you've got to stress that. And you, I would stress to the parents on when I would meet them that having raised a Bart Simpson in my life, <laughs> I mean, I knew what a lot of households were going through, and I know what teenagers are like, and and they're not all interested in education all the time. And so you just kind of have to uh, know that I'm there to understand that. And we're going to make sure that they, they have the best year ever. But, no, it went from education was the most important thing to I want that A. But I don't I don't necessarily know that there has to be the work to get that A. Right. I want that A. So I know that um, you, you had said there was a colleague of yours that um, in another state that had to deal with the parents were coming out, you know, standing up against the curriculum, and there's kind of this, what we're experiencing across the country now is maybe it is because they were in the Zoom room listening or uh, whatever the case may be, parents are getting a better understanding of what's being taught to their kids, and they want to get more involved. And, you know, you're seeing parents being arrested at school board meetings, and um, there's this conflict right now of, the state or the the education system telling you, no, 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 this is what we're going to teach your kids, and we've kind of disarmed parents' ability to have an effect or or a voice in that. Right. It's like I, I didn't want parents to ever feel they had to tell me how to teach. But like I said, the district that, that I taught in, the parents were very involved in the schools through the uh, – 
parent-teacher organizations and so forth, and were always in the schools and and knew the teachers and and kind of knew what was going on. Very rarely did you have a parent that was was going to tell you you were unfit to work with teenagers and so forth. But uh, and that was usually over something like calling their child on dress code or something. You know, and <laughs> yeah. you're unfit to work with teenagers and so oh forth. Oh my but, gosh. Uh, we did have a lot of parental involvement, and I think that makes for a better school system because the parents know what's going on. You're working with their child, you know, which is their most important thing in their life, and it needs to be that communication. And I do know our elementary students, uh, teachers here, are constant communication with parents, right? which is very important. Um, you get into some other states and other districts and some of the ones you're seeing on the news – some of the stuff they're finding out is kind of scary. So, well, yeah. so even to that point, it it seems like there's this weird there's this weird thing going on where there's an ideology being pushed, and parents are waking up to you know this pushing, and they're standing up against it, but then they're they're almost being completely disarmed from their ability to to have an effect so take a look at like the don't say gay bill in florida it's like you have the media taking a run with don't say gay and you you have a senator from or an elected or um what do we call it she's she's a candidate for a senator position in california and her big position was i bought you know 50 billboards in florida that say gay in bold and so there's it's like two different conversations going on. There's what the bill was actually doing. Then there's this manipulative narrative, and nobody wants to address the value in what the bill suggests. Like, keep these types of conversations out of kindergartners. You could talk about it in fifth grade, fourth grade, third, but let's not talk about it with kindergartners. Well, I, first of all, the, I don't even listen to the news anymore because I literally don't believe a thing they say. Right. It's just gotten so, and it used to be we had newscasters, and they literally just reported the news, and they said good evening, and then it was over. But even our local news stations, it's that personal opinion they're putting in. I don't want to hear their personal opinion. Right. I want to just hear the news of the day, and that's it. I can form my own opinion, but that's not, that's not the way it is. And everything's taken out of context anymore, and then they run with it, and it's not true. And we're finding that nationally and some of the stuff that was um, said about our prior president it turned out not to be true and so forth i mean it's just it's crazy and well i also want to hammer back to a comment you had made before the podcast about how you know to piggyback off of this point i know for a fact politics did not have an effect in my at least grade school uh experience it didn't exist i ironically took a government class and that would have been what 11th grade 12th grade whatever it was and i remember sitting at the kitchen table with my dad going can you please explain to me the difference between a democrat and republican i don't get it and at that point it's evolved trust me it's (laughs) evolved but at that point in time my dad he really was like i I don't know, one one wants to, you know, and it was a very juvenile description, so I laugh looking back at it, it was like, that was a poor description, Dad. <laughs> but it was like, I didn't even know what they were, and I surely didn't know what my government teacher was, and she wasn't pushing us to be on a team, whereas now I get to, so law school. I want my favorite professor in law school. I took sports law. I also took con law, constitutional law, with him at the same time. Sports law, 
in law school, one person gets the A. And sports law was one of the courses that I got the A in. I... 60% of the grade was participation. I didn't have to read the cases. I just showed up and we talked about, right. you know, assault on a football field. I loved it. It was like, I'm just talking about baseball today. I love it. And 60% of the grade was participation. Um, and my professor grabs me one day and he goes, you know, you talk all the time in this class, but you don't talk in con law. Why is that? And think about what constitutional law is. It's all of the touchy subjects, whether it's uh, diversity in schools or abortion or whatever, right. it's all the subjects a white man cannot talk about. And that classroom was the most volatile. Every, it was all, everybody was silent except for the one ideology that controlled the room. And if you tried to speak up or suggest something else, it ruined, it didn't just ruin the day's experience in the classroom. It followed you out of the classroom and it became such a hell that nobody said a word. Now, ironically, that sports law class, there's a gentleman, I'm still close with him, but he worked with the Ravens, the Ravens football team. It's sports law. This is your forte. If there's anything you should get excited about, listen, you're not going to get excited about contracts, but sports law, this is for you. He sat there, 60% participation. He sat there every day, his hood up, his feet on the chair. It was a three-hour course, so like in the middle, we took a break. When we came back from the break, if he didn't talk, the professor would pull it out of you. Right. Well, 60% participation, and I'm of the belief that if you write like you talk, your essay probably didn't get a good grade either. But he failed and went after the school for racism, and sports law is no longer even taught there. Oh, wow. So the amount of friends that I had, because you only get like two electives in law school. The most of it is just your, you know, basic right. classes. And everybody's like, oh, well, you made it, I made it sound fun. You know, I'm telling these people about the cases I'm reading. They're like, this is incredible. I want this case or this class. And literally the next, next semester, it is taken off of the books. It's not even offered. And... Here's the most, he's tenured, and the most prized professor they have is being faced with racial allegations, and instead of acknowledging it or refuting it, they just cancel the class. It's just easier that way. Wow. That's a, that's another thing that bothers me is how only one person can complain about something, and it ruins it for everybody else. Everybody. You know, and not to go down that road, but what kills me is, Take like what's going on with the Supreme Court nominee. The problem is to get to be sitting in the chair where you're being interviewed by this panel, you have to do so much. You clerked with these federal judges and you had this job as a prosecutor here. I mean, the resume it takes to be in that seat. It amazes me that nobody takes and the reason is because they can exploit it for personal benefit. But not one person wants to go, I will not allow you to appoint me on the basis of a mutable characteristic, melanin in my skin. Because all these things I had to do to get to this position belittles all my hard work. And the fact that nobody is kind of confronting that it speaks to human nature that, well, I know it to be true. Like, it isn't, I'm not getting this position, you know, because of my merits, but because, but it's great because it plays in my benefit. 
the unfortunate part is I don't know where we go from here. You know, like I, I think it disarms our ability to come back. I think they retaught us racism personally. I really do. Cause it did. It, when I was in your classroom, it wasn't there like it is now. Oh, absolutely not. I, I can honestly say I never looked out on a classroom and saw anything but my students. Period. I couldn't have told you what religion they were. I couldn't have told you what ethnicity they were. I couldn't have told you. I didn't know. It didn't matter. They were just my students. It's just, it's amazing to me how, like I said, until Obama got elected, I couldn't have told you anybody's political leanings. Didn't even know them. Even people I'd grown up with. Had no idea. None. And then all of a sudden it became prominent. You were either liberal or you were conservative. And right. it be- became so divisive. And I kind of hate it because I have good friends now that you can't even have just just a normal conversation with because you're afraid you're going to say something that's going to set that off and then it's not going to be pleasant anymore. Right. Or go back to like how we were saying, you know, people just want to silence conversations that they may not be able to defeat or whatever. It's so sad that you could see a post on Facebook of something you don't agree with and the approach is, well, I'm unfriending them. We're not friends anymore. It's like... That, that seems pretty, that's not very liberal to me. To me, that seems very uh, fascist-like, you know? Like you either believe or say what I'm saying, or you're out. It's, that's the heart I of the know. problem. Well, I know a person that I know was on Facebook and said, if you voted for Trump, unfriend me. I do not want to be your friend. And I thought, you've never even been in a discussion with anyone, and that you just don't want to be their friend because they might have voted for Trump. So him not having a clue who I ever voted for, I just unfriended him because (laughs) I I, I don't want him as a friend if if that's his mindset. That's the key, if that's the mindset. Yes. Even to like, so one of the other points I was going to bring up, and this kind of piggybacks off of everything we were talking about, I definitely have a chip on my shoulder, I'll admit. I went to law school. This is the highest level of education, and it was an embarrassment. It w- we call it the Socratic method. That means we investigate these topics by questioning and, and bouncing ideas off of each other. And it was such an opposite to that. It was you either are saying what... Just a perfect example. I walk into um, Remedies course, which is, you know, like uh, it, it's in a mathematical evaluation of what you would get paid out in certain circumstances. Like if you lose an arm, right. what is that worth or whatever? First day of class, we're sitting there and she goes, so like who really cares about the legal theory, right? And I'm like, me? It's literally the only reason I'm here. And she goes... Well, besides like this guy, nobody cares about the legal theory. You just want to know what the law is. And for me, that spoke volumes of this. What this is, is we are teaching you what to think and certainly not how to think. You either be the best drone we can create or you're valueless to us. Well, I used to tell all of you, I don't know if you remember, it was putting tools in your toolbox. I said, And there's going to be times we have to do stuff that you're never going to do again. But it's putting tools in your toolbox so when you encounter something that you don't know how to do, you at least can explore it because you now have tools to think, okay, I can solve this. And I right. said, I tried to instill in every child that if you can't find the answer, you don't just say, oh, I can't do it. You, you ask someone, you get help, you do whatever it is till you can come to a conclusion on how to do this because that's, that's life. <laughs> 
Right, but that's great advice, and it even further leads us to the next point I was going to raise, and that piggybacks off of all this is they, they, the general they, they, they have kind of supplied us with. We want a liberal education, and the original, I guess, presentation of that was what it meant was we want to have a diversity of thought and idea, background, uh, lifestyle. Because, you know, you're not going to agree with everybody, but diversity of thought and background will allow us to grow in a way that without it, you know, you wouldn't be able to grow to that degree. And what's interesting is a liberal education has evolved from as many varying voices and, and backgrounds to cookie cutter. You are either this or you're out. And it's kind of... I don't want to go down this road too much, but to me, I'm of the belief that Democrats play word games. They can't beat you on logic. So what they do is they call themselves anti-fascist and push fascist you know, positions. They call themselves liberal when I'm certainly of the position that I believe I'm liberal. That's it. Like philosophically, I don't care who you're having sex with or what you're smoking on your property. As long as it doesn't affect me on my property, I'm liberal to it. That isn't the Democrat position anymore. It's either you're on the team, you're wearing the jersey, or you're out. And so you've watched what was originally presented as diversity of thought and and background to cookie-cutter creator, where you're either in it or you're out. Well, like I said, when I went to college, I didn't know one thing about my professors other than whether the class was an easy class or a hard class. You didn't. I didn't know if they were married. I didn't know if they were... Uh, religion. I didn't know their political beliefs because I was never part of it. You right. were there to learn, period, and you learn that material. And and having been in math and science, I'm I'm sure that's one of the reasons I'm so conservative because you know a, a liver is a liver and two plus two is four and that's not going to change. <laughs> and it's like well. there's no discussion. It's like. That's the way it is, although now the newest thing is, you know, math is racist, which they don't understand. Math was created by the Arab community way back when, so why would they think that this is racist when, it, it makes no sense to me, but anyway. Um, but the one of the trends I was seeing in education, one of the reasons I, when I retired, decided to retire was you were talking about the cookie cutter. I was being made to, you had to teach the same exact thing that someone else teaching your course was teaching on the same day. You had to give the exact same tests. You couldn't, you know, vary from that. And that took away my ability to do the extra things that I had developed over the years that I knew would be, you know, advantageous for the students. Right. I'll I'll give you one example. We, um, doing a cubic function. If I gave you an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and said fold the sides up to maximize volume for that open box, what size corner should you cut out of it? Well, I could just show you how to solve that mathematically. But I, and I don't know if I was able to do it with your class or not because it could have been when this had already started that I couldn't do it. I would have a group cut out a quarter inch, half inch, all the way up through three inches, and then I would have them bring me the boxes and they would make a pyramid. And the kids were all fascinated with this pyramid. <laughs> and then I would say, now make an educated guess as to which one could hold the most sand. And some would guess that biggest one on the bottom. Some would guess the tallest one. Some would guess in the middle. Then I would show them how to solve it mathematically. 
and you saw the apex of this cubic function, you saw the x corner you should have cut out. Well, now, this math problem that they had to do, they actually had built. They saw it. They saw the ramifications of what happens if you cut out different corners. Now that makes sense. Well, right. see, I couldn't do that kind of stuff because the time had been taken away from me because I had to be on the same page as so-and-so. And oh, my gosh. I had another puzzle that would take days to do in the floor in groups that took in every concept we had talked about through the whole year. And you saw students with their calculators, with note, with pencil and paper and discussion and because the sides had to match. Like if it said sign the 30, you had to have a half matching it and so forth. And it was very complicated to get this whole puzzle done. And the first group that could get it done got more points, you know, and kind of stuff. Well, I didn't have time to do that kind of stuff. So it took away the things that I thought actually made math make more sense to everybody. Right. But I wasn't allowed to do that anymore, so... So they even took away your individuality in terms of an educator, oh, yes. like your ability to approach it from yes, a new angle. Yes, yep. And what value could that possibly serve? I don't know. I don't understand it. And then another concept was the test couldn't be any more than 10 minutes long, which I don't know how that afforded an AP student to sit for a three-hour exam or <laughs> a college where one exam determines your whole grade. Right. I, that was starting. That I, I didn't have to encounter that, but... Uh, you also, if a child came in your class and did nothing, nothing, you couldn't give them less than 50% for the quarter or whatever. So you had to just, what, muster up 50% on the grade books for them? You just gave them 50%. So they didn't have too big of a hole to dig out of, which wow, in my black and white world, you know, a liver is a liver and two plus two is four, that did not compute. Wow. Now, can you imagine, I don't know, it's maybe exhausting. colleges are doing it. I don't know. It's been so long since I've been there. But I can't imagine college literally going to a class and not doing one thing would give well, no, you I, at least they, 50%. Well, you want to know why? Because where you were teaching, it, it was paid for by the state. Whereas at a college, we don't care. We're taking your money. You you just gave us $20,000 for a zero. And, and you got to go drink all day or whatever. You know, it's... And and that's the problem we face is we've coddled people to such a degree now that when the rude awakening of life hits them, they're a victim. We owe them. We you know and and, and that's it's just, what's happening with this uh, you know shortage of workers and so forth because these young people don't have to work because they're entitled. Right, right, <laughs> and and it does. It gets back to my point of you know people don't have foresight. I mean, I had to spend four years in college being ridiculed by my friends for having a philosophy degree. I mean, we would watch television shows that would make fun of philosophy degrees, and they'd look over like, hey. And I, But as I took it on the chin for four years, I knew that philosophy majors scored the highest on the LSAT. I knew that this was the tr- track I saw myself going down a long time ago, so I set myself up for this. The problem is if you just have a two-dimensional perspective where you're just living in the now and you're spending $100,000 in a contract that you may not be able to pay back for a gender study degree and then you you come to learn that it doesn't pay off like right. you expected. Absolutely. We, I don't know if you're, you were aware of this. There was two gentlemen. I'll put their name on the bottom of the screen here just so we have it. 
but Joe Rogan is the biggest podcaster in the world right now. And when I was in law school, um, so this was probably like two, three years ago, he had these two gentlemen on. One was a math professor and one was a um, philosophy professor. And they wrote, because you know how as a professor you have to like do publications and their publications were totally falsified, total lies. And it was all to perpetuate gender studies to show that how unreal this stuff is. The biggest paper that went the most national was dog parks make your dog gay. And they just totally made it up. They, just to prove that none of this is, um, you know, fact-checked or peer-reviewed. It's just, you. this is the narrative we want to push. You are s- supporting it, so we're going to push it. And they've been totally exiled. You know, once they finally did the whole unveiling of, like, the eight publications that you guys have now, you're now incorporating in all of your curriculums are totally fake. And now... All the other professors, you know, they hate them. They've been ostracized. But I think that was the greatest service they could have done to America was emphasizing the whole in kind of the the collegiate, I don't know. I think it's just a patting of the back. We all pat each other on the back. And if we all support each other, it doesn't matter what we're saying or how true it is. It's scary. <laughs> it is scary. So I, you know what? You had brought up when you were younger – and when you were being educated, and then at the beginning of your career, it used to be you didn't know the the background of your professors, you didn't know the political affiliation, and now we couldn't be more opposite of that. And the line has now been blurred between education and politics. And so my question for you is, what do you think caused that? And is there a way for us to get past this? I honestly don't know what caused it other than we just have got started out with all someone had to do was complain that they were offended, and the next thing you know, everything gets changed for one person instead of the majority of people. I guess maybe, well, I had no idea teachers were as liberal as they are until all this started. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, this just kind of floored me because... I know everybody believes in rule and order in your classroom and so forth, and that doesn't equate to me to someone that believes in peace and love and <laughs> everything that you do. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, I honestly don't know where it started. I don't know how it started because it it's so far removed from anything I ever experienced. I even know in raising a family, they didn't experience any of this. I mean... Kids went to school for school, and, you know, you you were on the side of the teachers. If the child wasn't doing well, like, well, then bring that book home. We're going to study, and you're going to do well. Right, you know? right, right. <laughs> There's no excuse. You know, I used to say, I said to my son one time, he said, yeah, the kids will say, well, the teacher hates me. And he said, I said, well, if, that's a, if that is true, I said, you need to make it your goal to have the highest grade in the class and really tick that teacher off. Right, yeah, I love that. <laughs> But you know what? We don't have that that conquering mentality anymore. It, it you we it used to be if you want something you take it. Now it's well, I'm just going to sit around and cry until it's handed to me. What kills me is my dad had trained me of do, 
do you want to grow or climb the ladder, you have to make yourself invaluable. So whether it was working at Sprint before law school or working at the courthouse, it is every day, how do I make myself invaluable? The rude awakening to the workforce now, though, and it's just, it blows my mind. I was trained in this, this perspective of if you're not valuable, they get rid of you. Now it's, we're promoting people just because, you know, they've been there for so long, we owe it to them. It's like, but he's terrible at his job. What are we doing? Keep giving people, rewarding this poor behavior. Well, I know a case of a insurance company that had a new college employee, and uh, for his first um, performance rating or observation or whatever, the mother called and complained because she didn't like it. I'm like, well, I would be getting rid of that employee. <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, if... If I got to deal with your mom. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And I've heard of parents calling college professors because their child isn't getting, you know, a good grade. I could not imagine my parents being involved with my college, collegiate experience with my Lord, professors. when I went to school, your parents weren't involved at all. I could have literally taken uh, four years of enough to get a degree in underwater basket weave. My parents would never have had a clue because you're dropped off at college. You plan out your four years of what you right. want to do. I don't think my parents ever even questioned me on what I was taking. They just knew that I was going to do what was expected of me. Right. Well, so another interesting per position that has been kind of uh, promulgated recently is that it isn't a skin tone privilege anymore. More so, it's the privilege in the modern world today is a two-parent household that cares about you. They could be divorced, whatever, but having two parents that have their eyes on you and are that care. And I don't know. To me, it speaks volumes to where we're at today where parents, they, they don't want to be involved. They just kind of throw their kids out there. And but, but also the interesting part is, may, do you think maybe it's coming from a place of guilt that they've detached themselves so much? Why do they involve themselves, you know, scolding the teacher or getting, it's, it seems like their involvement is misdirected. Does that mean? What? No. Um, for instance, I can remember when I first got married, I can remember my parents saying to me, we will always be here for you. We will never give you advice unless you ask for it because you're on your own. Right, right. Whereas children aren't raised that way today where they just are on their own and have to make decisions. And sometimes you have to fail at a decision to learn. And I used to say to some parents, you know, if your child isn't willing to put in the time and and do the work, then maybe they need to fail and realize that you do have to actually do the work to pass. Right. But that's where I don't like parental involvement. It's like, let that child make a decision once in a while, you know. And I used to say to the parents, I shouldn't have to ever really talk to you because these young people are getting ready to go to college. Right. And you're not going to go to college with them. They need to learn to get the help on their own. They need to learn to make the decisions on their own. And once in a while, you need to say what's going on. But, you know, like they need to handle this. Right. What an interesting time. Okay, so I know that you also have a lot of thoughts for us. Well, my, I'm just kind of sad to see that I feel education is kind of broken right now. And that, um, there's a lot of staffing shortages. Some school districts 
don't even have teachers to cover the classrooms. <sighs> so they've got an, either administrator going in there or whatever that you can't find substitutes anymore. Some of that's due to the pandemic. Some of them didn't come back. Uh, districts are actually hiring substitutes that don't even have a college degree. No way. Way. So can I ask you about that as a sub? Because the sub isn't going home thinking about how do I make a better connection with the student because they're not even going to be with that student the next day. It's see, the job of a sub oftentimes is just kind of a filler to get us a babysitter yes. until the teacher gets back. Well, I when I first was hired by the district, I was hired as a substitute because I had been a mother for a long time, and then I got back into education. And like you said, what your dad had said to you, you do the best you can. I knew that I needed to make a name as a sub. Okay. And so I did work with the students and and so that the teachers would want to have me back and make a name for myself. And that's how I got hired in the district. Oh, wow. But the fact that they're putting, you know, non-degreed people even in the classroom, I find that kind of upsetting. And I used to say to my students, I said, you know, I know we use the word substitute. We probably should use guest teacher or something because substitute yeah. kind of conjures up the thought, well, I don't have to do anything. Right. Uh, but I said to the students, I said, you can rest assured if I'm not here, I'm not on the beach in Aruba someplace. <laughs> I'm here because of some reason. Right. And if you, you've got to do what I ask you to do so that I don't have to come back and, you know, start over. Right. But again, that was my responsibility to stress to the students what I expected when a substitute was there. But um, and teachers are out of the classroom more than ever anymore because they're always taking them out for all these meetings and all this stuff, so they need subs. Well, a long time ago, I did graduate research and did a 50-page prospectus on substitute teaching. Oh, okay. And came to the conclusion that school districts need to have what are called super subs. They're actually hired by the district. They work for the district. They're in the buildings at all times. So when there is a teacher out, they've got someone that knows that whole building oh. and so forth. Well, I presented it, and, of course, I was scoffed at. When right. I, You're not allowed to. What are you doing? But thinking? I do think our district here is doing something similar to that now. I do have some subs in the building, that, you know, for reasons of you know, emergency or whatever. So at least a classroom is covered. Which only makes sense since teachers are out of the room more than ever anymore. But but even then, I I think that's a profound position. I've never heard that presented. And the reality is there's so much... The biggest struggle of a substitute is gaining and keeping the respect of the students. I think that's easily done when it's Mr. Johnson who's here every day. You see him in the hallway. He right. may not be teaching. He, you may have Mr. Johnson well, three times. Know the routine of the building, how yes. homeroom works or whatever their procedure is, and, and so then it's not someone coming in that has no clue what's going on. Um, or if a kid's being problematic, they know who to go to, how to properly, you know. I think kids got away with a lot more. With a, The viewer watching this right now knows oh, they yes. got away with a lot more yes. because they were a substitute. Um. Another thing I feel we've lost some years during the pandemic, I feel, especially for the lower ability students and the students with learning disabilities and so forth that need that constant reinforcement because they learn differently. It doesn't mean they can't learn. It just means they learn differently, and they need that, and I feel we probably lost a lot there. Of course, these are my opinions. And who knows? Which you're not allowed to have any. Um, so. I... Uh, I'm a little sad over this woke agenda over everything, you know, that's 
I had a three-ring binder on my desk that um, for each class, any kid that was on an individual education plan or a 504 plan, I mean, I had to follow that. And so to keep it straight, I had each by period so that I would know which child had to have everything on blue paper or whatever had to have it so they could fold their test in half or okay. that had to take it to be read to them or whatever because you have to keep all that straight. I can't imagine now having to now also decide what pronoun they're going to be called and I mean, I, I don't know that I could keep up with that. But, um, but, but you know, even that, the sad part is when where we go, first off, they spend two, three years telling you, trust the science, trust the science. If you look at the Canadian legislation of 70-plus genders, if you mispronoun someone, if, if you misuse someone's pronoun, there's legal ramifications, fines, and if it happens enough, then maybe jail time. The crazy part of all of this is of the 70 plus genders, you have fox, pixie, fairy. How are those tethered to science at all? Where's the science in that? And so the problem is science is becoming increasingly subjective where it used what science was, wasn't an indoctrination. This is the truth. It was you and I would theorize, we would experiment, it would be peer-reviewed, and then the result, that's the science. Not not an indoctrination, it's a process. And it blows my mind that, you, you know, to, to this stuff, it's like the fact that we had to pass a bill to tell you to stop trying to coerce my five-year-old into being gay or transgender, the, the fact that that had pen to paper, that had to happen is mind-boggling. It's, I don't even know why that would be the school's responsibility. I don't get that at all. But uh, uh, one of the new theories about in education that I, was that you're only allowed to talk for five minutes, period, and the rest of it has to be self-exploration. Oh, my. Well, myself being a visual learner, that would not have worked for me. <laughs> you know, I want someone showing me what to do, and exactly. then I can take it and run with it. Uh, I know that I talked to in, in another state, and they had tried that, and it failed miserably, and they were back to kind of basics. Um, and then another thing that um, I, I do feel there is some hope in education, because like in uh, San Francisco, where the school board members were recalled and, uh, in a very liberal city in our country, because during the pandemic, they were more interested in renaming 44 schools than in what was happening to these children not being able to go to school. Right. So they did get the, them recalled, and I think that oh, that's some huge. hope in education. Uh, Youngkin being elected governor in, in Virginia gives me hope in education. And uh, so there are some things that are starting to happen. I think people are starting to realize that, you know, like I said, it. I, I love being a teacher, and it was – I knew every day when I walked in the classroom I was doing what I was meant to do, and I, I hope that it gets fixed. Yeah, I, I do too. I think it innately is always going to be fixable. It's just will will the people take that initiative? I think education in and of itself, just the, the process, the theory of it, it's, it's pure. So you either take back the purity. We, we go back to our roots of... Instead of you telling us what we need to teach, I don't know. Going back to like what colleges were, it's it's crazy to me that 
what first enticed, like, you know, the boomer generation to go to college was that it was like a giant think tank. It was like, just come here and bring your ideas and, and we'll grow with each other. And I think education is innately like that, where let's just grow together. And I think we could take it back. I, we just need to demand it. Um, oh, gosh, I lost my train of thought. You told me something and it, it made me think of something else. And now It happens to be all the time on this podcast. You, you, you can't even underplay it. Oh, um, I know what it was. Um, having started in the late 60s and now it's 2022, uh, there's always these cyclical things in math education. You know, like they, Someone comes up with a new idea the way you have to teach math. And, oh, gosh, there's a certain... Uh, cadre of teachers that no matter what you present to them, oh gosh, this is the most fabulous thing I've ever heard. So if they said you have to dress in purple because that's what's going to make the students learn, they'd be, oh yes, that's it. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. And I would be the one like, really? Right. So I've watched these cyclical things happen, you know, where the uh, way back when it was all set theory, everything had to be t- t- taught versus set theory. And then they did away with that. And, and it's just always something new. So I'm hoping that cyclically, with the cyclical path, we'll come back to some. So I, I want to pick your brain on one other thing then. I've noticed, or one thing that I've kind of uh, been been introduced to is how, like, division isn't even done the same way it used to be. And, you know, like, the... the well, I, that happened when you all were. I, because to uh, divide polynomials, you have to do long divisions. And I remember I would put... Three, I said, okay, we're going to go back to grade school and I put three into 51, and, and they would be, well, what is that? What is that symbol? They had never seen no. that division symbol. And I would like, well, I don't have time to teach you. <laughs> yeah, the basic? Yes. Oh, wow. And I volunteered in a classroom for years now in an elementary. Oh, and, great. Um, How are you enjoying that? I was. Oh, I've been doing it because of the pandemic. Sure. That, that stopped. But uh, <laughs> it was kind of daunting at first because I was used to seniors – and I, now I'm going to be with, like, third graders. And I remember I said to the secretary the first day, I said, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to like this or not. I'm used to kids that, you know, I can joke around with and so forth. Right. Well, it was actually exciting and fun to see where they're starting to learn, you know, versus when I got it, like, is this going to be on the test? <laughs> yeah. all, all they care about. <laughs> but uh, I would have to say to the teacher, now show me how you want this done because it's totally opposite of anything I would come up with. You know, like if you're going to take five times six, you draw six circles, you'd put five dots in each circle, and then you'd count all the dots up. No. And they do still do the times tables, which I would say to the kids, now when you get into big people math, trust me, this This is is what you need to know. You can't draw the six circles. Right. And count up all the, no, it's just, I can see the theory behind it and so forth, but there's some things that rote learning is, there's nothing wrong with it, like, so that you say five times six is 30, and you know that automatically. Without. But it's just so funny to see where we've ended up because I think back to third grade where you had your timetables, and for every number, one through nine, you had a condiment that went on your Sunday. Yes. And you must have gone to gym. You know it. You know it with Miss Jago. You, this is literally her classroom. <laughs> um, ironically, well, they I, still do that. Do they? Because yes, I was going to make the comment that I would feel like we can't do that because this kid has chocolate sauce and this kid doesn't, and that leaves this kid well, out because I, he doesn't I know did, five. I did think about that 
but they still do teach the timetables, which I'm thrilled to see. But they also teach all these other ways, uh, which I can see the theory behind it. But having grown up without even a calculator, I mean, I went through college, there was no such thing as a calculator. So, and here you are shoving a graphing calculator down our throat. That thing was a quagmire, let me tell you. But I used to teach it both ways, with or without the calculator, because some college professors at that time, when you graduated, still didn't allow calculators. Right. Um, but an, uh, an example of technology, I was in the grocery store, and my card got stuck in the checkout thing. Now, practically the entire store had to come over because no one could figure out what to do, and the guy behind me had already loaded all his stuff onto the counter, and I said to him, technology at its finest. He goes, well, it makes things go faster. And I said, well, how's that working out for you now? <laughs> considering that you now have to take all your groceries to another. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt to kind of know things right? <laughs> without technology. But uh, So one of the things that you had brought up was how you know, there there was a standard of how this was taught across all the classrooms, whatever it could be, the long division, whatever. So all the different teachers were to teach the same approach. But I also got to imagine from when you first started to where you ended, there were also probably multiple, multiple different ways of approaching it. They told you, this is how we're going to do it now. This is how we're doing it now. Was there ever a time where there was a new approach but to you, the old approach was better. How did you deal with that type of conundrum? Did you teach what you thought was best, or did you just do with well, what I they actually asked? actually an example of that. I was going to be a team player. So I took the teacher's materials, her lesson, and I'm teaching it. And it was on um, vectors, which I didn't really care for. <laughs> My Also in math, I used to say, why don't you let us teach what you know where the strong point, our right. strong point is. But anyway, so I'm teaching this whole lesson and thinking to myself, I really don't understand vectors. And this student asked me a question, and I said to him, you know, that is a valid question. I said, something's wrong. I said, we're going to stop for today. So I went to a physics teacher, and I said, I'm going to show you how I would do it my old-fashioned way, and I want to show you what I've been told to do. I was right. Really? So what did you do? Did you go back to teaching it the old way? Yes. Oh, yes. I came in the next day and said, give me back all your materials. <laughs> I said, we're now doing it my way. And I went to the teacher and I said, I just want you to know that this is all wrong. And the teacher said, oh, okay. <laughs> and then it just started and ended there. And meanwhile, I've just wasted a whole day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so Mrs. Crow, I want to end on one last topic. We kind of touched upon it at the beginning. It is something that I wrestled with you all too often, and I can single-handedly say you're the reason I'm as passionate about it as I am. I want to know where do you stand as of now on the political or, or the um, philosophical conversation about merit pay. So for the audience member who doesn't know what that means, it's paying teachers based on their ability to teach. Now, the question is, how do you measure that? Are you measuring it based off of students' test scores? Are you basing it off of, I, I want to, it, it's maybe a little too vague or general, but I want to propose 
knowledge gained. So the, the, it always boils down to, well, the people that are teaching honors are going to have an advantage over the people that are teaching. I just think knowledge gained. If you have the special kids, but they gained the knowledge and you were able to accommodate their learning deficiencies and everything else, that's just, if not more, impressive than the person with the honor students that, you know, was able to, you know, just, they're, they're the better students. So well, they I can, get, I can give you an example of that. Plus I can also, um, it would not have bothered me to have had merit pay because I knew that. Because I would, you would have won. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that you should be held accountable for your job you're doing. I really wish they would do away with all this standardized testing because the I've, I'm afraid education is teaching too much to these tests instead of the knowledge that you need to have in your toolbox. Right. And that was uh, my example. I kept I always said to you kids, I'm putting tools in your toolbox so that when you get out there, and it doesn't have to do with math even, it's you've learned to think logically and you can solve any problem that you're confronted with. And you're not just going to meet defeat. You're going to try to solve it. Right. That was always my objective, but... Don't know that I got to all of them, but that was <laughs> I, I think it was an impossible feat to get to everybody. And so for the ones that you were able to, you should take pride in, in you know, from when you go to like Creekside, you know, go get yourself a beef satay at Creekside. You know, there you've made us from Nick Foster in the kitchen to Steve running the joint. You've had a severe impact on all of us. Well, my favorite thing is running into former students and seeing the success that they have become. It just makes it just it's just the best feeling. Uh I know I ran into a student one time, and he had been in the newspaper or something. He said, oh, that's so embarrassing. My mother did that. And I said, oh, absolutely <laughs> not. I said, because once you leave us, we don't necessarily get to know what you did. And I said, it's just so exciting to see that the success that you all become. It just, that's, that's my f- most fun thing. That's so rewarding. You know, it, because it's the fruits of your labor. You finally get to enjoy yeah. the fruits of your labor. But, uh. So in light of that, let, let's wrap up on, I want to pick your brain on the students that you weren't able to get through to. I, it just fascinates me, the patience a teacher needs to have for that kid you were never going to make an impression and with. I always considered it a failure because I always prided myself. I had a sign on my back that for years it said, if any student has a severe emotional behavior problem, put them in Jeannie's class because she will take care of them. And I always felt because I approached a lot of stuff with a sense of humor and Yes. and so forth, that I could get through to most kids. And there, there's a handful that I could not. Uh, and it was always sad to me that I couldn't. But, uh, I mean, I've gone through the years. I've had students that, have, that I had to carry mace because they were going to kill me if they saw me. And Because uh, <laughs> when you're first starting out in education, which is a great disservice to the students and to the teacher, they give you a lot of the real problem children and you don't have the skills you're you know you haven't even taught you don't know right and uh i've had uh some rough ones over the years but uh i had i I can actually sit here and remember one girl and uh one boy that i just absolutely couldn't get through to and it's i actually said to the girl as smart as you are why don't you use your talents and help somebody in the class who isn't as smart as you are instead of your you know your anger towards me and the young man I asked him if he hated all women or was it just me but (laughs) (laughs) what was his response (laughs) he didn't answer yeah (laughs) he had to think about it I finally had to go to his uh, one of his coaches and said I need help and 
that's where I hate when the schools cut the sports and the music and the everything because for some kids they need the structure of the sports, some kids need the talent of the music. I mean, this is you know I hate when that stuff gets cut. But uh, after the coach spoke with him, then I, then it was fine. then it was <laughs> <laughs> what what sport was it? Uh, I can't remember if it was baseball or football. Now, I relied on the coaches quite a few times over the years for to, for children that you had problems with that. Because if they wanted to stay in that sport, they had to, you know, do what with their. They had to do the scholastic end of it also. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, plus, yeah. there's just a there's an aspect of accountability that sports can provide that, or you know, I I agree you could find it in the arts as well. But there is something to well, we're just going to make you run all night, and you're just you're going to run right. laps until you well, figure out how to respect your teacher. And I wonder with all the wokeism if some of that's been cut out because. It has to be. That's that's what I'm alluding to. Is it? It has to be. It has to. Uh, but uh, well, no. But you know, take a student that is artistic, and that's their love of school. You know, they have to take the other things, but that's what they love, and that's what they're probably going to pursue. So I hate it when that kind of stuff gets cut. Okay, I I know I keep telling you I have one last thing for you. I promise this is my last thing for you. We have been taught that you or you had raised the point. Everybody learns differently. I, I have never been a test taker. I don't have the attention to just sit there. I'll outright anybody. You know, you want to do a 100-page essay, I'll outright you to the end of the earth. I was much better. I loved essay because yes. then I knew I could just tell you everything. You could be artistic I, yes. and play with it. And Yes, I, I definitely relate to that. And the problem I had was unless I was in a classroom where the teacher was trying to pull engagement, if it was just a slideshow, I'm going to look out the window. I'm, I'm lost. You lost me. Um, there's other people who do better in those type of situations. How were you able to traverse the different ways of learning and try to appeal to the most amount of students? Well, one thing was being there at 6.30 in the morning, <sighs> work before school with students, stay after school with students, to give up my lunch wow. hour for students or my free periods, um, and to impress upon them that they needed to get the help. Um, for some of them, it was working with their small group instructor because of their learning disabilities, um, trying to have things in color, you know, and some of it animated and so forth on the smart board to make it more interesting. Uh, if I saw a student yawning, I might go stand beside them and sing and embarrass the living daylights out of them. Or I used to tell them, I said, you know, sometimes when you're sitting in class and you're actually like in a food coma, I said, please, get up and go get a drink of water or something. <laughs> because it's you're miserable. Right. And you're not going to come around. And you're just miserable. Right. So I found that trying to treat them, treat them as the young adults they were, that I did get a lot more out of them. But uh, And in some cases I've had... Other, another teacher in the room with me because of learning disabilities, and okay. that helped. I taught one class where most of the kids had learning disabilities, and okay. uh, I'd had another teacher that worked with me, and it was a beautiful. We we just had this great team. So, but uh, my favorite was teaching the seniors. That was really that was always my favorite because I could discuss, joke, you know. <laughs> right, right. There, there was some consciousness yes, there. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Well, Mrs. Crow, I need to emphasize, I can't thank you enough for giving me your time, as you did at our lunches and before school to well after we've left your classroom. I appreciate you giving me your time. Well, it was fun, and I'm I'm very impressed with what you're doing here. This is well, exciting. thank you. I appreciate it. So, wrapping up, I, I to the audience member, I appreciate you your listening us to this far. We we've gone pretty far. Um, if the best thing you could do to support this podcast is to share the episode, so go ahead and drop that link on your Facebook or wherever the case may be. Smash that subscribe button and the like button. Um, but you can find all of our Rethink Tank content on our website at www.rethinktankpodcast.com. Otherwise. We'll catch you next time. Mrs. Crow again, thank you, and we'll catch you next time. Peace.